What a glorious passage of Scripture this is. Uh, tremendous, tremendous. <clears throat> well, why don't we pray one more time and ask the Lord to really bless us as we look at His Word. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we come before You now, Lord, and we thank You for the great blessing that is Your church. Thank You that we can gather together as Your people, that we can look at these divine mysteries again. And thank You, Lord, that You have graciously, graciously provided us with an example, Lord, in um, in this chapter of one person, one one man, one woman after another of faith so that we can understand, Lord, what it is that You uh, have given to the church, Lord, this great book, this great chapter, this hall of faith as it has been called by many Lord, where we see uh, not just the greatness of one individual or that individual's faith, but even more importantly, Lord, that we see the greatness of the object of their faith, which is You, Your great love for them, Your great mercy and grace, Lord, and Your faithfulness. Lord, we thank You for that. Father, we pray for Your, your favor now. We pray for Your hand of blessing to be on us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. I better pick up Pastor Chris's communion cup or else you guys are going to hear a weird crunch up here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a really wonderful, wonderful occasion because we get to look at the, the man, uh, the patriarch, Abraham, who I really love to talk about and to study and to look upon. You know, Abraham really towers over redemptive history as a beacon of covenant faith and as, as, as really what the Bible calls Abraham the believer, which basically would say there that Abraham is really the prototypical believer of the Bible. In other words, if you want to be in the true religion, you had better be a believer like Abraham. You'd better be blessed with Abraham as... Uh, Paul makes it very clear in Galatians chapter 3. But we are on the patriarchs, and as such, we are going to look at profiles of different patriarchs as we go along. We're going to look at Abraham, we're going to look at Sarah, we're going to look at Isaac and Jacob, we're going to look at Joseph, we're going to look at these different profiles one by one, little by little. I have no reason, I have no cause, uh, I have uh, no good uh, reason to rush through this chapter unless one of you comes up to me afterwards and tries to, you know, mount a coup or something to get me through this chapter quickly. I have no desire to go quickly. I, I want to go slow and I want to take our time because I think there's so much here for us. And so I have decided to take this first section, verses 8 through 10, and to entitle this sermon really, Trusting God in the Realm of the Unknown. Look at verse 8 through 10 again with me. I want to read it for us. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, watch this now, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking to the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So now you see, of course, that 
Abraham was called upon by God to believe in something that he could not see. And this ties us back to uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and cha- or chapter 11, verse 1, and chapter 11, verse 7. You remember there that I said that the whole passage is sort of uh, designed or structured around the concept of the unseen. Faith is hope and conviction of things not seen. And then in verse 7, of course, Noah being warned about things not yet seen. And here Abraham being called by God to obey him regarding things that he could not see for he went out not knowing where he was going. And therefore, it is imperative for us to understand that for our own lives, God often calls us to live like this, to live a life of faith. Trusting God for things that you and I yet cannot see. We can't wrap our minds around the things that God is doing. We Maybe even on a real practical, personal level, we just don't know how God is going to do it next year. We don't know how God's going to provide. You know your bills better than I do. You know your income better than I do. You know your financial situation. You know your family situation. And many of you have come to that point, or maybe you're at that point now, where you don't know how God is going to provide, or what's around the bin, and what's going to happen to my kids, and what's coming in the future. The future is unknown to us personally. Uh, Obviously, we have the big picture. We know that the future is certain. Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to establish His kingdom. He's going to usher forth an everlasting kingdom, a new heaven, a new earth. And we know our heaven is sure. It is fixed. It is there. It is concrete. You don't have to question or doubt it. We know that judgment is coming. But we don't know what's going to happen next week in our own personal lives. And I don't want you to miss the miracle of walking by faith and trusting God in the realm of the unknown. Because see, this is going to bind you close to God, near to God. It's going to make you dependent. Remember, dependent on God, good. Independence, bad. Not good for us. But I want to back up here for a moment. And understand this great and glorious promise that undergirds all of this, all of this. Remember, by faith, just really means that Abraham put his trust and his confidence in God. Why? Well, because God is a God of faithfulness. And you and I, we can walk by faith because we can trust that God is the bedrock of our lives. Real practical. Turn to chapter 13. Uh, Right after um, the author gives us an exhortation about money, regarding money, he uses a covenantal formula to remind us that God is faithful. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have, for he himself has said, now watch this, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I shall not be afraid, what will man do to me? You see that? That promise right there is what you need to turn to when the bills come. (laughs) It's what you need to turn to when the employment, all of a sudden, uh, imperceptible to you, 
uh, for no reason that you can think of, ends. And you can use this not just for financial crisis, not just for marital crisis, not just for family crisis, but for all crisis. And in every situation, hear the words of God, I will never desert you. Isn't it remarkably comforting? Now this comes back to the formula that he's quoting here, going all the way back to Deuteronomic law. Israel was encouraged to trust God. Now you can go there if you'd like. I want to read this again. Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, which undergirds God's covenant faithfulness. We saw this in the formulation of a nation. The nation was formed, being brought out of Egypt. God formulated and constituted a formal theocracy, a government, a nation, a kingdom of priests, right, is what he desired. And he gave them not just his law, but he gave them the promise of his covenant faithfulness. Look at verse 6. Be strong and courageous. I like that. Sounds like a movie that somebody made. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. Talking about their enemies. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. Listen to that. The reason why you, you today in these seats, in this church, in your present context, the reason why you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6 and derive great comfort for your own life is because Hebrews chapter 13 just gave you all the license in the world to go back to the the God of the covenant and there see your life in that covenant promise. You are not so far removed from Deuteronomy. This is for you. This is a comfort for us now. Be courageous. I'm the one that goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Sound familiar? Then Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give to them and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. The Lord is the one that goes ahead of you. Watch this and zero in on this promise. He will be with you. I love that. He will not fail you. He will not forsake you. And so then the result of this is do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. In the life of Joshua, this would be repeated to Joshua. God, even though he spoke to him through Moses, this is Moses then commissioning Joshua, but by the time you get to the book of Joshua in chapter 1, guess what? Joshua needs to be reminded over and over and over and over throughout the book of Joshua, God has to remind Joshua over and over repeatedly, be strong, be courageous, do not be afraid, I am with you. Joshua 1 verse 7. Be strong and be courageous. Be careful to do according to the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Going all the way down to verse 9, he says, For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Why was Abraham held out as a model of faith? Because Abraham lived this when he was called. 
This is where Abraham comes in. Hebrews brings him in now and he moves us out of the primitive history of the church now to the patriarchal history of the church as a model of faith. And so Abraham will forever stand as a beacon, a model, an example, a type for all redemptive history and for all of God's people to see. Now, I want us to I want us to learn a few things from Abraham's calling here back in chapter 11. Let me let me set out three things that I want to point out. Number one, Abraham was called to trust God. Listen now through radical obedience, radical obedience. We are told in Genesis chapter 11 and then later in Joshua 24 that uh, Abraham was called out of the Ur of Chaldees out of a pagan situation. He was called out of his home country and he was called to leave, pick up, pack up and go. But you've got to understand the stress level here is more than just for Abraham. Remember, Abraham had flocks, he had tents, he had a group of people with him. He was very wealthy and had a lot of uh, had a big company that went with him. So he's responsible for all of that. But notice here the tinge of radical obedience. He did not know where he was going. Furthermore, notice the fact that Abraham's uh, faith was uh, that obedient in the sense that he immediately went. Notice what the text says. By faith, when he was called, obeyed. Does that describe us when God calls us? Does that describe us when God sets before us his will to do, to obey his word? Is the next thing that follows our faith command is we obeyed, right? Abraham obeyed. He went out and not knowing where he was going, he believed in the God of Jeremiah when God told Jeremiah that he, in his day, would face unspeakable odds. I mean, think about it. There you are, a prophet of God, and God himself tells you, hey, by the way, everyone is going to hate you. (laughs) Welcome to the ministry, (laughs) right? Every king, every prince, every priest... The religious people, my word is going to be in your body like burning fire. It's going to be shut up in your bones. You're going to have to speak the word of the Lord. And everyone is going to hate you for it. Matter of fact, he says the whole land will be against you. They will fight against you. But what does God tell Jeremiah? I am with you. It's very simple. We have to understand that oftentimes God calls us to do things that that throws us right out of our comfort zone. The whole Christian life is like that, right? The calling to follow Christ, the calling of discipleship, the calling to pick up our cross. I mean, think of the disciples. There you are fishing one moment and the next moment you have the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus telling you, Cast down your nets and come and follow me. There you are, a tax collector. You've made a living doing this. And Jesus comes up to you and says, Matthew, leave your booth behind and follow me. Of course, missionaries are in touch with this. Missionaries know exactly what it feels to be to be called to the hard places of the world. And you need to know that you are called. I think that's important. Notice because it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, notice that he was genuinely called by God. Obviously, you know, and I know that a lot of people in the name of being called to things are really not called. They're just delusional. Um, 
We need to identify that we are genuinely called to whatever it is that God is calling. How do you know that God is calling you to this or to that, to ministry, to a calling, to the mission field, or whatever it may be? Well, I think God has given us ways that we can verify this. I think this is good for us to understand that God has given us objective means by no, of knowing whether or not God is calling us to something. Now, we do not, like Abraham, we do not share the miraculous theophany presence of God where you are going to have a vision of God or you are going to hear an audible voice by God. Um, you may not have an epiphanic episode like that where it's going to literally come through a supernatural miracle, a dream or a vision that is absolutely the presence of God in your very midst. But we do know that as long as the calling that we have is scriptural, biblical, as long as we know that we have the attestation of the church around us, how do you know you're called? Let me just put it in a context that, that I can resonate with. And that's, let's say, being called to be a pastor or a preacher. How do you know? Right? How do you know? I would say you would know, number one, whether or not you fit the qualifications of 1 Timothy. Very objective criteria. You know because it is a biblical calling. You don't need to question if this ministry exists or not. Is it a biblical calling? Of course. And then you also know by the external confirmation of the church. If uh, you feel called to be a pastor, a preacher, or a teacher, you better have an affirmation that goes outside of your own house. I mean, listen, your wife is probably your biggest fan, but she cannot be the sole sanctified wisdom in your life. You need mature men and women of God that are going to come outside of you and, and, and are not going to be afraid to offend you by telling you whether or not they feel you are really actually called by God. Uh, there's nothing like the safety of the church. Amen? Because I've seen this so many times. I tell you, that's one of the hardest things personally in pastoral ministry when you have a young man that feels called to pastoral ministry, but nobody else feels the same way he does. I knew a young man that uh, was constantly, well, not that young, but was constantly uh, insisting that God was calling him to pastoral ministry. But the problem is, is he just seemed to go from church to church, never really land anywhere, never really serve anywhere. And I believe on the basis of places like Philippians chapter 2, where Timothy is there as a, you know, a, a very a close assistant and emissary of the Apostle Paul, that if you are called to be a pastor in God's church, you will presently be an asset to the church. You will not come out of the closet and pronounce your calling and thrust your calling on the church so that it's a wild-eyed surprise to everybody. No. If you are called to preach, to teach, to be a pastor, chances are you already are functioning as, if you would, you are functioning in light of pastoral ministry. Those gifting, those giftings have already been being cultivated and used and the church is acknowledging your calling. That takes a lot of faith, being called to pastor, to preach, to stand in front of people and to uh, rightly divide the word of God. Trust me, you need a lot of faith. <laughs> Sometimes it takes a lot of faith just to go from there to here. <laughs> Am I ready? <laughs> well, the other thing I want to point out is not only did Abraham have this radical calling because he was actually called, but secondly, because Abraham was absolutely obedient he was obedient to God's call and we see that Abraham was constantly tested by God to see whether or not he would obey. 
And sometimes God puts these issues in our lives to test us to see, will we be obedient? The Apostle Paul in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he tested the church of Corinth uh, through the issue of church discipline, testing them to see, will you be obedient in everything? It's one thing to put a person out of the church. It's another thing to bring a person back into the church and perform reconciliation. That's a whole nother ballgame. But we know that God is in the business of purifying his people. Titus chapter 3 says that God desires to purify a people for himself. Look at uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen to see this, that God often tested Abraham and elicited his faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, you see that? Offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Boy, the implications of the gospel there. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God was able to raise people even from the dead. You see that? From which he also received Isaac back as a type. So that Isaac became sort of a type of Christ who would raise the promised son, would raise again from the dead. And Abraham believed God so much. He had faith in God so much. How is God going to fulfill his word to me? If I execute the promised seed, how will God fulfill his promises? The reason why is he said God can do anything. He can even raise a person from the dead. Is that our faith? Do we believe God can do anything? That's what God, that is where when we talk about trusting God in the realm of the unknown, that is where God wants to bring us. That's the point that He wants to bring us to. That we have been brought to a place in our own life, our own walk with God, where we believe God can do anything. And so I entrust myself to Him. And He can. He can do anything. That's right. So notice third that Abraham's faith in God's promises also allowed him to trust in God. It says Abraham obeyed by going out to a place which he was about to receive for an inheritance. So there's the presence of the promise. How do you walk by faith? Well, say, well, by faith, not by sight. Yes, but your faith is educated by the word of God, the promises of God. You have God's promises and that's what you build your faith upon. That is what Abraham was doing. Now, what's the context in which he did this? So true, genuine faith, trusting God in areas that are unknown, requires radical obedience, and we can go on and on and on with that. But it also requires that we live in a certain way. In this context, Abraham was called to trust God as a pilgrim in a strange land. Notice what he says. He says here that, By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And so we have to adopt this mindset that I've talked about over and over, this mindset of a sojourner, this mindset of a of of an exile, of a stranger in the world. As a matter of fact, uh, Genesis, in Genesis, Uh, Abraham often identifies himself as a stranger when he was in a land that he didn't belong. Like in Genesis chapter 3, he tells him, I'm a stranger among you. 
he realized that he didn't belong. But now that concept of exile, sojourn, pilgrim, that whole concept in the historical life of Abraham is now being used theologically in our lives. You see that? So that Abraham, in a sense, is typological of the whole Christian life. The whole Christian life is to be lived in this way. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because Peter exhorts the church in a moral sense to live as pilgrims. To take and adopt this same primitive patriarchal mindset now in our own lives. He says, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, notice the term of endearment there. He wants to exhort them as a fellow believer, as a fellow brother. He says, Beloved, as a in familial terms here. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Notice he, uh, he exhorts them along those lines, basically saying this is what you are, like it or not. You are a alien. You are a stranger. And he says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slandered you as evildoers, they may, watch this, because of your good alien-like, stranger-like pilgrimage deeds... As they observe them, they may glorify God in the day of visitation. And I take that in the day of visitation. Perhaps God will use your witness to save them. In the day of visitation means the possibility that God would visit them with salvation. That's my interpretation of 1 Peter there. And it is also Wayne Grudem's interpretation and others. Anyway, I throw that out only because I've been forced to look into that phrase, the day of visitation. So think about it. Somebody, because of your witness, because you have decided to live like a pilgrim in this world and to keep yourself unstained from fleshly lusts, and you've decided to be a good witness to your neighbors when the, the day upon which God visits them with salvation, because you've had good, excellent behavior, they have nothing against you. You will have a witness that is above reproach. Above reproach. And so we share this same pilgrim life, not just with Jesus, not just with the apostles, but all the way back in redemptive history from the earliest times of God's people. The pilgrim life, let's face it, is a calling of estrangement. Not estrangement of God. Not estrangement of one another or families. Well, maybe but an estrangement from the world. We, we are called to, to live in this life with a, with a loose hand in a sense, to, to not hold on, to not drive the pegs of our tents too deep into this world and culture. Right? We are blessed in our context here in America. I mean, just think about it as the American church, how blessed we really are. And I bring this up for one reason. If you think about it, we are blessed in every way. We're blessed in our churches, blessed with technology, blessed in safety, blessed in our freedoms to freely proclaim the gospel, at least for now. We are blessed in many, many ways. Think about all the conferences or Bible colleges or seminaries or concerts that you can attend. We are truly blessed in America. But with great blessing, you know where I'm going with this, with great blessing comes great responsibility I think it was John Piper who says, I don't fear persecution as much as I fear apple pie. In other words, it's the peacetime I fear. 
It's the fact that we can get so comfortable here. It's the fact that we have nothing uh, sort of uh, putting us in the crucible in this Christian walk, but we are nevertheless called to live in such a way where we try to refrain from finding our total identity in a fallen world system. May I read to you 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things of the world. Isn't that an incredible statement? John the Apostle is known as the Apostle of light and darkness, truth and error. In other words, for him, everything is dogmatic and crystal clear. <laughs> he makes these, talk about, uh, talk about, uh, you know, statements that are with a broad, broad brush. Do not love the world. <laughs> Just that simple. Because it's how he defines it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. What that tells us, brothers and sisters, is that our world, our context, our culture, its ethics, its standards are diametrically opposed to our loving Father. And therefore, we should not find all of our identity in this place. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, excuse me, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, uh, by the way, that's another way of speaking about the spirit of the age that Paul talks about in Ephesians. The, the, the spirit of the age of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience. This is just a commentary on that. The lust of the flesh, the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. This is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world, listen to this, another reason why we cannot identify with this world system and we cannot find our all in all in here, all of our ambitions, all of our, uh, all of our uh, 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 desires cannot be bound up in this place. Why? Because the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. This is really amazing. The fact that Abraham had been called out of Ur meant that he was called to live as a stranger, a sojourner in this world. Not only does Genesis tell us about Abraham historically, but Hebrews reminds us theologically, again, that we should all live like this. Look at Hebrews 11.13. Again, this is sort of, uh, remember I told you at different times, In the context of Hebrews 11, the author sort of digresses and sort of stops to comment on everything that he's been talking about. And this is one of those moments. All of these, all these people, Abel, Noah, Enoch, Abraham, Sarah, they all died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, meaning they knew that from redemptive history, the standpoint of redemptive history, the promise, the realization, the fullness, the eschaton was yet far off. It says, they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. See, they were looking for something greater. The pilgrim life, brothers and sisters, is tent life. Tent life. You know, tents like going camping. It's like what people used to do before cell phones arrived on the scene. Right? That's what kids used to like to do before, you know, the laptops and the, 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 uh, the iPads and everything else became of any, you want to spend time outside, right? We don't do that anymore. Well, Texas is so, the weather is so adverse, you may, you may not never want to do that. But anyway, tent life is the opposite of city life. In the Bible and especially the primitive history of the church or of the Word of God, early on, 
tent life is in contrast with city life. City life speaks about a person settling down. It speaks about a person being more than willing to identify here and now. That's not what we're called to do. This leads us to our last point, and that's this. If we are going to trust God in the realm of the unknown, which means our whole Christian life to some degree, a life of faith, a life of trust, not only does God require of us radical obedience where we have to conform to His Word and His will, not only does it require a pilgrim mindset, living as a pilgrim in a strange land, but it also is a call for us to trust God for something better. What I wrote down here, a better city. See, there's nothing wrong with cities per se. I mean, just right here in our backyard, you know, they are dumping billions of dollars in first. I don't know if you've heard about this. There's a stretch of land right over here by the, uh, by the stadium called the five billion dollar mile. Did you hear about this? They're pumping literally millions and billions of dollars into Frisco, all in the attempt to make the city more vibrant and beautiful and, 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 you know, economically prosperous and all of that. And I just see it as a big old, you know, uh, big old, uh, uh, opportunity for evangelism. That's all I see. There's a Muslim across the street from the Cowboy Stadium, uh, from Dubai, who's actually developing a huge, massive, a luxury development right here in our backyard, hotels and shopping, a Muslim from Dubai um, that is going to be building this. But all of that is so that people will feel more attracted to this place and feel more at home in this place and to, and to have their roots go down deep in this place. As a matter of fact, I watched a, I watched a little promotion about this development and it says, Frisco, a city that you can call home. And I thought, boy, i got to use that for my sermon. Because there is no home in this world for the believer. This is not our home. Dallas is not our home. Frisco, Texas is... I know some of you are diehard Texans, okay? And it's like... I found that out when I took Chris Matthews to the Pacific Ocean and showed him Pacific for the first time. Sorry, buddy. He's a diehard Texan, you know. And there's a lot of them here like that. (laughs) But Texas is not our home. You know that, and God reminds you of that time and time again. And when He does that, He's reminding you to let go a little bit. Don't get so excited about being a Texan. Get excited about being a resident of heaven. Get excited about the fact that your citizenship is in heaven. That is what we should be excited about. You know, there's nothing wrong with, again, building cities. God is going to build a city. I'd remind you of that. Turn with me to chapter 12 of Hebrews. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, because I thought, you know what? The amazing thing about cities is what they're attempting to establish. They want to give us permanence. They want to give us stability. And they want to give us aesthetics or beauty or they want to inspire us, right? And you know, because nobody, you know, the billion dollar mile is not going to be built ugly. I mean, it's not going to be something, you know, the reason they're dumping so much money is just there's going to be, you know, fountains. And I've seen videos that it's going to be really elaborate what they're doing. Why? Because we crave a beautiful city. We were made to live in beauty. I mean, we've been studying Eden in Sunday school. And what do we find? 
we find that God is going to build a city. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. By the way, if you ever question church membership, grapple with that verse. The church enrolled in heaven? Where did the author of Hebrews get the idea of a church role? Membership, that's why. But anyway, that's another, that's another sermon. But notice what's going to be provided for us, what we want. God is going to give us a city. Look at this. It says here, back in Hebrews 11, you go back to Hebrews 11, it says that as they're looking for something better, a better city, look at what it says, for he was looking for the city. And the operative verb in that verse, verse 10, is looking. Because what that implies is faith. In other words, you're looking with the eye of faith. You're believing. You're expecting. There's a, there's a, there's a spiritual anticipation of a permanent home far more glorious than anything that you will find in this world, in this country, anywhere. But it is a city which has foundations. You see that? Remarkable. Themalios. It basically means that we want to, we want to, we want to arrive at something permanent. Tent life is what we are, pilgrim life is what we are called to do now. But that's not our ultimate aspirations, right? If we're, if we're honest with ourselves, isn't that what we want? We just want to belong somewhere. We want to have a secure home. Um, homeland security exists to try to provide us a certain level of general security from things like terrorism. Because nobody wants to live in a hostile environment. And so we crave security, permanence. We crave a foundation that is sure. And that's exactly what God's going to do. God is going to build a city whose foundation is so sure it can never be shaken, never be taken away. Psalm 87 says basically that this city, this foundation is bound with God, who God is. It says in Psalm 87, verse 1, God's foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all of the other dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. City of God. Now, Abraham would never have called it the New Jerusalem. Abraham would never have have said... That, that what he was looking for was the Jerusalem of God. Because that's a term that eventually came later. But that is exactly what Abraham was craving. He was craving the heavenly Jerusalem. The heavenly city. But guess what? God is not just going to provide us stability. He's also going to give us beauty. Why do I say that? Look at uh, back in Hebrews 11. Because... It's not just a city with foundations, but watch this, whose architect and builder is God. Two different words. Architect, technites. It's a word that speaks of a designer. And here, of course, we're talking about the divine designer. Can you imagine how much the developers are getting paid for the $5 billion mile to to design what's going on over here in Frisco? And yet... 
the greatest designer, I don't care if you're talking about the, the, the eighth wonder of the world somewhere, the greatest designer of any architectural structure on planet Earth could not even begin to fathom the wisdom of God, the beauty of God, the design of God. Those are blueprints he'd like to get his hands on, I'll tell you that much. Because God is going to design something for us so exceedingly wonderful and beautiful, time would fail. And I would say it's not even lawful to attempt to describe to you the luster and the beauty and the glory of heaven. Sometimes I wonder, have we lost sight of the fact that we are headed for exquisite living? We are headed for, you want to talk about utopia, we're headed for heaven. What is heaven? Perfection. Why? Because God was the designer. He was the architect. He is the one that laid down the blueprints. Everything is perfect. Nothing is out of place. No need for upgrades 10 years, 5 years, a million years, trillion years from now. You will never need to enhance heaven. You'll never need to put scaffolding on heaven. You will never need to tear down and rebuild heaven. God is going to make heaven permanently, eternally great. And I bet you, you'll be impressed. Because He is not just the architect, watch this, but He is the one who sovereignly will execute the design. He is also called the builder. Which means, going back to creation language, He's the creator. He is the maker. He is the one that's going to put every nail into the city of God. Amazing, right? This city... Therefore, brothers and sisters, I want to just encourage you. Like Abraham, we're sojourning through this place. And we have certain precious promises that tell us that what God is going to provide for us is everything that we can seek here, but we'll never find. You'll never find a permanent, stable, safe place to live. It will always break down. It will always have problems. Now, some of you know my um, obsession with dogs. How many of you know this? Okay. I help people with their dogs. I won't get into this too much, even though my wife is like, preach another sermon, please. I have been to some of the most amazing homes in Dallas. I've been to mansions. I've uh, worked with people that are filthy rich. And a seven-pound chihuahua runs the whole mansion. I was working with one gentleman who was very, very wealthy. He came home, but he couldn't sit on his couch because he was terrorized by his chihuahua. Now, he spent all that money, but he can't enjoy a single part of it. Uh, you got a chihuahua terrorizing a millionaire in his own home. How absurd is that? I guess my point's going to be there won't be any terrorist chihuahuas in heaven. Everything will be subdued. Everything will be brought to perfection. Think about it. If hell is a place where your lusts will never be satisfied again, heaven is the place where your desires will forever be satisfied. That is the country that we're seeking. It's the place of abundance. Canaan sure. It is Psalm 16 where at His right hands there will be pleasure forevermore, forever and ever. It will never end on in into the ages of eternity. Father, 
You are the great architect, the great builder, designer, maker. Lord, you are the sustainer of life. You give life. You take life. Oh, Lord, we say with Paul, everything is from you, through you, and back to you. To you be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. And Lord, we pray that you would give us that pilgrim mindset, that we would live in this world, Lord, with a loose hand, knowing that anything that we have presently can and will be taken away from us at any moment. And I think that's so true, Lord, for people who have come down with a diagnosis they were not expecting. I can think of a couple brothers right now that have been given a diagnosis at the age of 20, 30, terminal, not expecting it. And so God, help it, let it not be that we need something like that to bring us up sharp on living for eternity. But let it be your testimony of Scripture alone that we need. The sufficiency of your word and your promises so that we would be stripped of our love affair with this world and that we would be infatuated with living for your glory as we head home to heaven. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.